Well, peace be with you. When I was young, I remember seeing a movie about uh, two young, young men, young boys, probably in public school, and they wanted to make this pact, this, this contract. It's like this covenant or this, this very special or sacred agreement uh, between them, and they wanted to do something that symbolized this new union and this pact that they had. And so uh, they weren't uh, biological brothers, but they had heard of something called blood brothers, and so they each had this little knife, pocket knife, pen knife, whatever it happened to be. And so they, each of them cut their hand. And you could see the blood starting to come out from their palms. And they shook. And when they shook, the blood kind of mixed together. And so although they did not have, you know, the same biological mother, they were, they were expressing some sort of brotherhood between them. And so they had this special pact for whatever goal they were going to share and and move forward on together. And so what did each side bring into that pact or that covenant bond? Well, they each brought their time, energy, commitment to whatever project they were working on. And that was the same for both sides. And also, if someone was in trouble, well, the other one would, would kind of go to their defense and would be there for them. At the same time, if that person ever got into trouble, the other person would come to their defense. They were blood brothers. They had this covenant bond, which was very powerful. And the reason I begin like this is because we are in a covenant relationship with God. A covenant relationship with bond, this, this covenant of love or this covenant of grace. And so God brings to this covenant bond, and this is the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament, a covenant, a sacred contract, a binding agreement. So God promises to be our God and we promise to be his people. Now what does God bring to this, this end of the agreement? Well, he promises to be our God, which is pretty amazing in and of itself. He also promises to be loyal and faithful to us, and he also gives us wisdom and guidance and help through our lives, and we also know that at the end of our days on earth, we will discover that the closing of that door is not, in fact, a closing, but the opening of a door into all the great eternal promises of God, forgiveness and peace with God forever, worship and joy in the fellowship of Lord God the Almighty. It's pretty amazing what he brings to the contract, to the covenant. What do we bring? Well, we also bring our faithfulness and loyalty to him. He promises to be our God. We promise to be faithful to him. We bring our time, energy, commitment, and mostly our love as we seek to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend a few minutes talking about what does it mean to love God as a part of our end of the deal? as a part of our end of the contract of this covenant relationship that we have with God. And it's good to reflect on it because the word love is used in so many kind of willy-nilly ways in our culture, and our time. Sometimes people say they love something and really they just mean they have a strong positive feeling about something, right? And we know when we're using love in a casual way and we know when we are using that word in a more serious way. But just to cut through and give us all clarity, Jesus helps us and he actually tells us specifically, if you love him, and we love, we're Christians, we love Jesus. We say we love Jesus. But what does that mean? Does it mean getting the t-shirt? Does it mean doing nice things for people once in a while? He actually tells us in one of the most neglected verses in the New Testament, but which is very powerful. And this is what Jesus says. He says, if you love me, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what it means to love Jesus. Sure, we might have strong, positive feelings about him, but if you're loving him, if you're loyal to him, if you're faithful to him, you will do the sorts of things that he says. In fact, you will do those things. And so what we're going to do, because you love Jesus and I love Jesus, and this is Good Friday, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about all the things that you are doing as an expression of your love. 
for Jesus and God through our covenant relationship with him. And so how do we know what these things are? Well, one evening I opened my Bible and I went through the Gospel of John. And, and what I'm about to say isn't about Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Just through the Gospel of John, I just made a note of all the places where Jesus tells his disciples to do things. And I'm going to share them with you. Now, I'm not going to do repeats. So if he says, follow me to someone five times, I'm going to give you one example. Also, there's times when he says something which is situational. So, for example, in John chapter 5, you know, heals a person, get up, take your mat, and walk. So that's specific in that situation. I'm not going to include things like that. I'm looking at broad things. And this is great. We're going to just name and we're going to acknowledge and celebrate all the things you are doing as you keep up your end of the covenant agreement with God as an expression of your love because... You're doing these things. Because if you love you, love Jesus, you're keeping his commands. We'll just go through them one at a time. One, you follow him. Right? Chapter 1, verse 43, Jesus found Philip and said to him, follow me. And so I just want to name and celebrate and acknowledge that you're following Jesus. And, and that means he's the teacher, you're the student, he's the master, you're the, you're, you're the servant. Like you're, you're following him and you're, you're living each day in his footsteps, making decisions based on what he wants you to do. And that's great, amazing. That's an expression of your love. For God. Next, you are born again. Meaning that in context, right? And this comes from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in uh, chapter 3, specifically verse 3. Meaning that you have started life again with a, a new identity and ultimate allegiance to your heavenly Father. So you never doubt. You never doubt your identity or who you are. You know you're a child of God. You've got this new identity. Not only that, but this new fundamental allegiance. And, and you have that allegiance and that soaks and saturates all your priorities. So much so that other people will look at you as a disciple of Jesus. And what they do say, that person's new. So we name it, we celebrate it, good for you. That's an expression of your love. Next, you believe in or trust in or come to Jesus. Chapter 316, the famous promise, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, and so this is part of the purpose of the gospel, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So you live out of a place of this belief, and you don't carry all this worry and fretting all the time with you, and you just have this deep and abiding peace in you because you trust that God is control, and you're living that way every single day. You're doing amazing. I name it and celebrate it. That's an expression of your love for God. Next, what you, you do what is true. Chapter 3, verse 21, whoever does what is true says Jesus comes to the light, right? And so you always do what is true. You never fall victim to deception or falsehood or anything. It's amazing. So I just want to name and celebrate that in you. Next, you worship God in spirit and in truth. You do this so amazingly and consistently. Chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And in fact, our Heavenly Father seeks the people who worship him in that way. And so you worship all the time, you're so consistent, you're hungry for it. Not only that, but you're worshiping in a way that is consistent with the patterns of Scripture, and you go out from worship, and you're just renewed and energized with a godly, Christ-like mind, and that just soaks and saturates every moment of your day. Good job. It's an expression of your love for God. Next, you tell others the good news about Christ. In chapter 4, verse 35, he talks about, look, the fields are ripe or white for harvest. And there's so many passages that talk about this. So, so I just want to name and celebrate that you are just looking for those opportunities to share the good news about Jesus. And this is what you are doing. And you get excited about it. And you just seize those moments and sharing the light and love of Christ. And that's an expression of your love. You're doing a great job. Next, 
You don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And that's specifically what Jesus says to do in chapter 7, verse 24. So you've got that clarity of thought. A clarity of thought, and you've got a humble spirit, and you, and you, you live and work and walk and study or whatever with integrity. You never, you never assume the wrong things. You always get background information before ever making a judgment about something. You never say anything false about someone. You do this every day. I want to name it. You're doing great. It's amazing. You're perfect at that. It's an acknowledgement of your love. Next, you listen to his teaching. You know the truth and experience freedom. John 8, 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you feel that. And you feel that truth and that freedom. And that just permeates all your days. Good job. I'm going to name it. It's an expression of your love. Next, you serve others humbly. Chapter 13, verses 33 and 34. If I then, your Lord and teacher, said Jesus, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And you might not do that physically, right? But maybe you do it in other ways. And this is a humble posture of servanthood toward the people around you. You're just hungry for that. In fact, it makes such a difference. You are so consistent in that which Jesus tells his loving people to do that other people just know you. And so one day when you die, people are going to get up and talk about your powerful, loving heart that you just serve others with all the time. Great job. That's an expression of your love. Next. You love one another as Christ loved you. Talked about this last night, chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And so I just want to name and celebrate how you are sacrificial, sacrificially loving people around you. So much so that you will even risk your life or risk your reputation or risk other valuable things to you for the benefit of others. In fact, you do that so much that some people actually come up to you and say, hey, you need to tone it down a little bit. So we name and celebrate that you're doing great. That's an expression of your love because you love Jesus, so you are doing that. Next, you abide, sorry, you do similar works to Jesus and even greater works by the power of God's Spirit. Right? John 14, verse 12, he says, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So he goes to the Father, he sends a spirit to be in his people, doing greater work. So this is great. I just want to acknowledge and celebrate the teaching you're doing, the healings you're doing, the exercising the demonic and fighting in the spiritual realm that you are doing. That is amazing. It's an expression of your love. Next, you abide in Jesus, meaning you cultivate your enduring bond with Jesus over time. In the words of theologian J.I. Packer, you stay put in him. Nothing can ever cause you to doubt or ever kind of, you know, loosen you from the security of stability of that powerful bond that you have with him, right? That's from chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. Next, you produce evidence of your faithfulness by your actions. Chapter 15, verse 16, I chose you and appointed you, said Jesus, to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So bearing fruit is biblical language for showing evidence of your faith, showing evidence all the time. And so people who don't even you know, follow Jesus or don't know much about him will say, oh, that person's a Christian, is what they say about you, and say they are so evident that they are a Christian, you can just see the love of God flowing, gushing from their pores each and every day. I just want to name that and celebrate that. That's what you're doing, and, and it's amazing. It's an expression of your love for God. You are holy in God's truth. 
Jesus prays that his people will be sanctified in that truth. We aren't sucked into the filth or degradation or all the issues of the world. We are seeking to be distinct for God, and you are doing that. That's an expression of your love. That's great. You take care of God's people. Chapter 21, Jesus says to Simon Peter, feed my lambs and tend my sheep. And so you too, in a similar way, are looking for opportunities to show hospitality to the people of God or help them. Maybe they've got a mental, emotional challenge. They just need someone to talk to and work through. Maybe it's some sort of physical issue. Whatever they happen to have, that's amazing. All of this you are doing in your love. That's an expression of that love. Amazing. But hold on a minute. As I go through that list, you start feeling things, start thinking things yourselves. I don't do that. I do maybe some of those things sometimes, but I certainly don't do that. That's our end of the bargain. That's how we express our love, our loyalty, our faithfulness to God. Oh, oh. As I was putting this together and looking at this stuff, I felt convicted. I'm like, that's not me most of the time. And when we break our end of the bargain under normal circumstances, there are consequences. There are consequences being separated from God and being shut out from the glory of his might and facing judgment and even hellfire. This is serious. And so at this moment, we need to pause and reflect on the name Good Friday and why it is called that. And I want to, I focus on this, I highlight this every single year. Good Friday is good. Not because of what happened to Jesus, but because of what happened for you. Okay? Good Friday is good not because of what happened to Jesus. We're not sadists. We don't love seeing him up there bleeding and, and, and crying out and, and all the different things and the bloodletting. And we talked previously about the torture and horror of flogging, which many people didn't survive, and the arms coming undone and, 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 and lungs filling with. We're not sadists. It's good not because of what happened to Jesus, but because of what happened for you. And this morning, we're going to focus on two of those things. Jesus came to uphold our end of the agreement And second, he pays the consequence for our covenant-breaking disobedience. So let's think about this for a second, okay? So if this is a contract, we're in this covenant relationship with God, and we seek to be loving and faithful toward him, Jesus actually comes and upholds our end of the agreement. Okay, so remember when I was going through that list of things, these things that he tells his people to do? If you love me, you will do these things. Well, guess what? We don't. We fail in that. He is actually the only one who does them, and he does them on our behalf. So Jesus always is faithful. He always does what is true. He always worships in spirit and truth. He always tells others the good news. He always judges with right judgment. He always knows his father's teaching. He always abides in God's word. He always serves others humbly. He always loves others sacrificially. He always washes feet in humility. He always does mighty works. He always gives evidence of faithfulness. He always remains in the truth. He always takes care of God's people. He does that. There's this wonderful passage. Theologians call this imputed righteousness. That the righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account. When we talk about being in Christ, think about physically, spiritually being in Christ. So when he does something, that's credited to you because we are inside of him. Think of 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
God made him, Jesus, to be sin, although he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we stand before God one day, and what God sees, if we are in Christ by faith, he sees not our failures, but the perfection of Jesus, not our faithlessness, but Jesus' faithfulness, not our disobedience, but his obedience. He upholds our end of the agreement, such is his love for us. And next, he pays the consequence for our covenant breaking, and he does so on the cross. There needs to be justice, there needs to be fairness. And so we're the ones who actually deserve to be up there based on this fact that if we're being honest with ourselves, based on our covenant breaking, we deserve to be up there. But he goes up there, he pays the consequence for our disobedience. He is there, we are not. Devotional writer Max Lucado says, you can more easily capture the Pacific in a jar than describe that sacrifice in words. But we're going to try. When I was uh, playing hockey, uh, there was an expression, no pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. And that's extended to other facets of life. And I remember doing wind sprints on the track field and with a track and field coach who was not happy with us. No pain, no gain. Like that. But we extend that to other parts of life too. And what I'd like to do is leave you with four words that I think um, kind of alter that a bit, which communicates something of the reality and the significance of Good Friday. It's this, his pain, our gain. Because that's what's going on. His pain, he goes through all that for us. He deals with the separation, we get the embrace. He deals with the punishment, we get the blessing. All of these things, his pain, our gain. And so all we have to do is receive it. If we have these covenant breakers, and we have some good days, but mostly we are wayward ways. If we're covenant breakers, and he pays the consequence for our disobedience, how do we access this? It's this free, beautiful gift of salvation by God's grace. And so when we trust in Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us on the cross, what he has done gets credited to our account. It's a free gift of God, salvation in Christ. And so if we were to distill it down from those four words, even to one word, the word we would use is grace. Now grace, it's a word we use a lot. What does it mean? In the Bible, it means generosity you don't deserve. We don't deserve it because we've messed up. And sometimes that's hard for us to hear because we live in this culture. Everybody gets a ribbon. But let's be honest. It's generosity we don't deserve. A popular definition of grace theologically is unmerited favor. And yet God loves us so much, he comes and does this for us and he gives it to us so that when we stand before God, what he, do, what he sees is not our failures and foibles and all the messed up things in our life. He sees the righteousness of Jesus and that's credited to us. It's amazing. You know, Jesus talks about, this is the own, his own language that he uses, and it comes up various times in the Bible. Uh, but one of the examples I will just share with you this morning, I think it's a poignant because of what we did last night as we celebrated communion. Remember when that in communion, and Jesus takes the cup, he says, this cup is the new, what, covenant. There's that word. Is the new covenant sealed in my blood? That would have been surprising to people. Wait, if I'm making a covenant bond with someone, shouldn't my blood be involved? It's Jesus' blood. This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. His pain, our gain. Two things. Don't settle for a small vision of Jesus, please. 
Uh, this is a cancer in the church. It's a cancer in society. We have this small vision of Jesus. He's this moral teacher who's nice. He is a moral teacher who's nice, but he's so much more than that. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is Lord, Savior. He is God come to us in human form, exchanging his life for ours on the cross. This is what he does, and now he is interceding at the right hand of our Heavenly Father right now for his people. That's who Jesus is. That's the Jesus of the New Testament. He does all that. So don't settle for some small vision of Jesus. Without him, we are literally separated from God, and he has taken us from the clutch of the flames of hellfire into the very embrace of our Heavenly Father and made us inheritance, this, this wonderful, incredible inheritance, adopted us into the family. We are spiritual billionaires, none of which is possible without what he has done. And the second is simply to express your gratitude. And you are here, and that's great. This is an expression of gratitude. In your prayers, express that gratitude for the magnanimity of what he has done, that wonderful, majestic gift that he has done. Maybe it's just in conversations or as you go about your day, and maybe you realize you've lived in a way that is casual toward Jesus and what he has done. Today is the day to reverse that. And just before I share my closing thought on this Good Friday message, I just want to say to anyone who's here or anyone who's maybe listening online and you're tuning in to a a Good Friday message, and a lot of this is new. This is central to what the Christian gospel is, the good news of what Christ has done for us. So if you want to know more, reach out to us. Reach out to me, the church, an elder, a friend, someone. We will be in touch. We will talk because this is the most important uh, reality that we could ever have welcomed into our lives. Closing thought. Uh, Susanna Petroisen uh, and her four-year-old daughter, uh, Guiani, uh, they lived in uh, Soviet Armenia, and as uh, this mom and her, Susanna and her four-year-old daughter, they went to visit because she wanted to try on uh, some clothes from a relative, a blouse, and so went over to their apartment building and went up to the fifth floor, and this was December 7th, 1988, and they were only there for about 11 minutes before the ground started to shake. Started to shake and get very, and she didn't even have time to grab her daughter and head for the stairs because all of a sudden they were going down levels like this earthquake was huge. And so they had gone from the fifth level down to the basement. Not only that, but debris came over them because the building was nine stories high. And so they're trapped and it's all around them. And they're there and they can't move and they're pinned and they're in pain. Fortunately, they're both still alive. And they're within reach of one another. And they don't know what's going on. They're terrified out of their mind. They're experiencing pain. They're trapped. Mommy, what's going on? Imagine a four-year-old being in that situation. And so they're, they're horribly scared. Minutes, turns half an hour, turns into hours, turns into the night, turns into the next day. They're starting to wonder, does anyone even know we're here? Is anyone ever going to rescue us? Well, the days went on. Mommy, I'm hungry. Mommy, I'm hungry. And so Susanna's looking around and she's, you know, through the debris and she actually, by God's grace, finds a small jar of blackberry jam and she is able to open up even though her, her, her hands are hurting and they're starting to become numb and she gives them to her daughter. She doesn't care if she herself as the mom survives. She doesn't care if she lives or dies. She wants the best for her child and so she gives all the blackberry jam. This young four-year-old daughter. After that was done, Mommy, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Honey, I'm so thirsty. I haven't drank anything. I'm so thirsty. Honey, there's no water. I don't have any. Mommy, I'm so thirsty. And this goes on, and how difficult must that have been for her to hear? And so a couple days pass. Mommy, I'm so thirsty. 
And so at this point, her, her, her hands are in pain, they're numb, she's pinned, everything is going through her mind, and she starts to float in and out of consciousness. But at one point, perhaps in the night, she has this memory of watching this TV show where there's these two Arctic explorers, and one came upon someone who was in a desperate situation. There was no food, but he cut his hand, and blood came out of his hand, and he gave it to his friend to drink that he might survive. And so this is what the mom thinks. So she looks around. Of course, there's so much broken and shattered glass. All She takes this piece of glass and she cuts one of her fingers, drink, and gives it to her daughter. And her daughter sucks on her finger. Mommy, I'm still thirsty. Cut another finger. She cuts another finger and gives it to her. Mommy, I'm still thirsty. And so she doesn't know how many times she cut her hands, but they were both bleeding as she tried to feed her daughter. And I hope what is clear is that her blood was her daughter's only hope. Blood was the child's only hope. Christ, our blood brother, he is our blood brother. We are in a covenant of love with him, except it is only by his blood alone that we are saved. It is by his blood alone that we are saved. His pain, our gain. Thanks be to God. Amen.